Welcome to the Horror Babble Originals podcast. The Law of the Dreamscape by Ian Gordon It's a dusty old thing, that memory, littered with weeds unseen. Over the hills, under the trees, there on the edge of a dream. Stray too far, and you'll miss it, the thought it won't ever occur. To stray into wilds without reason, magnificent the end of despair. Beyond the bridges of slumber, Nokuth and her barnacled throne, fade into blackness and stroll by the light, close to the end of the line. And when awake once again by the starlight, look to the eye of the storm. But beware the path less travelled, for you might just forget who you are. The Path Prologue The renowned paranormal investigator Peter Van Melsen was in good company. He was sitting opposite his old friend Gary Cook, at Cook's Books in Scotland's national book town, Wigtown. The P.I. had recently been tasked by Cook with the retrieval of an extraordinary artefact. In quest of the elusive item, Van Melsen had plunged into the tunnels beneath the old city of York, aided by another chum, the young student, Alan Moore. The recovery hadn't been without its dangers, though. He and Alan managed to outmaneuver an ancient entity known as a sentinel, the designated guardian of the artefact in question. Following the escapade, it had been Van Melsen's hope that his old friend Gary would collect the little black box from his home in Rosedale, North Yorkshire. No such luck. Somehow, Cook had convinced Van Melsen to make the two-hundred-mile journey to his humble bookshop in Dumfries and Galloway, in order to assist him with an even bigger problem, an issue the investigator was unable to ignore, due to his inexplicable connection to it. According to Cook, the little black box, an item of some power, if Van Melsen's inability to handle it without succumbing to fantasies was anything to go by, hadn't belonged to those who revered it in the shadowy catacombs of York. Then how did it come to be there? Van Melsen asked, more than a little surprised. Cook, a rotund gent in his late seventies, was perched on a barrel stool, smoking. It's a long story, Peter. Van Melsen, too, was smoking, inhaling deeply. You know me, Gary. I'm rather partial to a long story. It was a warm July evening. Surrounded by books on all sides, the pair were perspiring. Can you give me something to work with, Gary? The investigator blurted. I feel like a slow-roasted chicken here. Cook leaned forward and nodded. I'll give it to you straight, Peter. We're off on a little trip this evening. Van Melsen, exhausted after spending most of the day climbing on and off trains, replied, A little trip? Well, you've made it this far, haven't you? Cook said. The investigator frowned. The bigger problem, Cook had mentioned over the phone just twenty-four hours earlier, had concerned the mysterious and missing figure, Jason Murphy. Having spent most of the year haunted by Murphy in one way or another, Van Melsen had agreed to assist Cook, if only to be freed of the young man's persistent presence. 
just six months before, whilst investigating a curious entity in the forest of Galloway, Van Melsen had come across a reference to the missing man etched in the door of a derelict farmhouse deep in the woods. Thereafter, a recurring dream of the investigators had increased in frequency, a nightmare he had endured for as long as he could remember, in which he would find himself leaping from a cliff in a huge underground cavern, startled into doing so by an approaching shape to his rear. And more recently, having gripped the little black box in that dreadful subterranean sanctum, Van Melsen had been subjected to an unnerving phantasmagoria. From another's perspective, he'd watched himself leap from the cliff in the cavern, his gaunt frame tumbling towards a slow-moving airship below. Had he been watching through Jason Murphy's eyes? He felt all but sure that he had, for during his brief, gloved contact with the mysterious box, he'd heard a faraway voice whisper the man's name. "'What do you actually know about Murphy?' Cook asked. "'Bits and pieces,' the P.I. returned. "'Disappeared over a decade ago. Walked the path, as it was later termed. Four Steps Murphy, they call him, the steps relating in some way to a supposed crossing of the bridges of slumber. Murphy's method, some refer to it. The custodians come up, too. You know, as first mentioned in Dylan Fisk's Nun. Daniel Fisk, Cook corrected. Daniel, yes, Van Melsen accepted, before continuing. Our old pal Norman asserts that the custodians know where to find Murphy. Says his method produced an active element— like the old portals in the forest up here. Cook puffed on his cigarette, nodding. Heard this from Kane, you say? Educated conjecture, as he put it, Van Melsen replied. Well, there's some truth to it, Cook said, climbing to his feet. Hobbling over to a dusty bureau, he plucked a frayed book from one of its many drawers and handed it to the P.I. Van Melsen opened the book, and saw that it was a handwritten journal. "'Everything I know about Murphy is on those pages,' Cook said, returning to his stool. After a few minutes spent leafing through the journal, the investigator looked up at his old friend, a look of wonder on his bony face. "'The box produced the active element?' "'That's what the evidence suggests,' Cook replied, motioning towards the brown travel-bag sitting on the small coffee-table separating the two. "'That's why I had you retrieve it, Peter.' "'Wait a minute,' the investigator said, dumbfounded. Then, pointing at his travel-bag, "'That thing in my bag there is the box?' "'Yes. The custodian recovered it from precisely the spot in which Murphy happened upon the active element. He and the box traded places, as it were.' Something called to him, lured him there. Once again, Van Melsen frowned, asking, To what end? That's the million-dollar question, old friend. The investigator shook his head. He couldn't believe what he was hearing. Staying on the subject of the box for the moment, Van Melsen pressed, How on earth did it end up in the hands of those cultists in York? Cook frowned. Like I said, Peter, it's a long story. A look of apprehension appeared on the investigator's face. The gloves you provided, Van Melsen said, shaking his head. 
They shielded me from the truth, didn't they? <laughs> if I'd known it was the box you'd sent me after— Believe me, the shopkeeper returned. The last thing you needed down there was a realization of that magnitude. Van Melson puffed on the remnants of his cigarette, lit another with it. So let me guess, you're sending me after him. Cook nodded, his wrinkly cheeks suddenly rosy. We have to know what happened to him, Peter, what it was that summoned him, and why. The P.I. sighed. I'll do it, Gary, but you have to level with me first. The shopkeeper nodded again, returning, Absolutely. You're a custodian, aren't you? Cook lit another cigarette before answering. With lungs filled with smoke, he uttered, I am though I prefer the term bookman. Bookman? Yes, has a nice ring to it, don't you think? Van Melsen gazed at his old friend, his eyebrows raised questioningly. You needn't be concerned, Peter. I'm just a scholar. I rarely leave Wigtown. I have to admit, the investigator stated, I had my suspicions when we last spoke on the subject. The shopkeeper shrugged, adding, No more secrets. You have my word. I won't deny you secrets, Gary. We all have them, the P.I. affirmed diplomatically. Just tell me, where do we go from here? Follow me, and bring that bag with you, Cook instructed, then climbed to his feet, wandering off in the direction of the basement. The basement of Cook's books was a brightly lit space, filled to the brim with cardboard boxes, many of which were stamped with the name of the shopkeeper's bi-monthly publication, Mysteries of the Mind. Guiding Van Melsen through the maze of packaging, Cook led him to an open area towards the back of the cellar, that, to the investigator's eyes, resembled a hooker lounge, all Afghan rugs and killam cushions. From a garish chandelier above flowed a haze of diffuse light, softening somewhat the dazzling reds and fiery oranges of the gaudy furnishings. "'What is this place?' Van Melsen quizzed, grimacing. "'I'm thinking of calling it the Gateway,' Cook returned, grinning. "'I see,' the investigator said, trolling through the front pocket of his velvet blazer for a cigarette. "'Take a seat, Peter,' Cook invited, indicating the many cushions covering the floor. Van Melsen did so, lighting the cigarette he'd fished out in the process. Cook took a seat opposite him. Now then, the shopkeeper said, let me tell you everything I know. The chap with the white hair and indigo eyes was ready to delineate his plan of action, a scheme that had been in the works for many years, but a bit of background was required to kick things off. Jason Murphy, a resident of West Broughton, Lancashire, disappeared in the latter days of November 2004. A neighbour, who lived across from Murphy in the apartment block on James Street, found the young man's door wide open one morning, and, suspecting something untoward had befallen him, called the police. A thorough search of Murphy's flat revealed nothing to suggest foul play. In fact, it appeared as though the loner had simply climbed to his feet one night and abandoned the place. Unwashed dishes filled the sink, a half-eaten meal was still out on the kitchen table, and a muted television was flashing away in the living room. 
The local papers reported the disappearance, and thus an enthralling mystery was born. The first I heard of it, Van Melsen put in, was Bob Wright's article in Fortean Weekly, early '06 it would have been. If I recall correctly, wasn't it a local dog-walker that said he'd seen a chap matching Murphy's description, walking in the fields just north of town? That's right, said Cook. All and sundry started searching for Murphy after that. Somehow Bob Wright caught wind of the investigation, and, evidently intrigued by the odd circumstances surrounding the young man's disappearance, drove up to Lancashire to join the search. Classic Bob Wright, Van Melsen said, puffing on his cigarette. The shopkeeper went on to say that Wright, a.k.a. Bob's always, after spending several days in West Broughton, combing the surrounding fields and talking to Murphy's neighbours, deduced that there wasn't anything particularly remarkable about the young man. He was a loner, it came out, an unemployed thirty-something, who, aside from a perfunctory interest in the occult, spent most of his time at home, whiling away the hours in front of the television. And yet, despite this suggestion of mundanity, Bob's always felt quite strongly that Murphy had strolled out that night with a specific purpose in mind, though what that purpose was, the writer could only surmise. Cook paused to light another cigarette. This is where the bookmen come in, Peter. Wright's article in Fortean Weekly caught the attention of a Manchester-based custodian, a bookman called Pimpinella. Can't say I've heard that name before, Van Melsen declared. I'm not surprised, Cook said. She kept a low profile. Past tense, Gary? Bear with me, old friend. The shopkeeper went on to relate the circumstances surrounding Pimpinella's discovery of the little black box. It's like this. If there's an active element within a certain radius, we can detect it, Cook stated. On the back of Wright's article, Pimpinella went out to West Broughton. Using a piece of equipment we call a primary, she managed to locate the AE. Quite the journey she went on, I can tell you. Ended up in the West Pennines. Van Melsen nodded, saying, White coppice, wasn't it? Aye. Not completely out of the loop, are you, Peter? Like I said earlier, bits and pieces. Well, Cook continued, Pimpinella located the little black box by the aptly named Black Brook, just on the outskirts of the Lancashire Hamlet. Initially, she theorised that the missing thirty-one-year-old had employed a rather uncommon psychic ability in order to produce the now-defunct active element. "'Telekinetic compulsion, by any chance?' Van Melsen ventured. "'Aye,' said Cook. The P.I. said, "'Well, as I'm sure we've discussed before, Gary, telekinetic compulsion requires foreknowledge of that which is sought. One focuses on a given location or object, and is drawn towards it. The same method I utilised in order to find the sanctum in the York catacombs.' Absolutely, Gary said, nodding. You'd have saved Pimpinella a great deal of time if you'd been around back then, Peter. Took her months to rule TC out. And that's why it has to be you that goes after the young man. You're the only one qualified for the job. Van Melsen frowned, suddenly aware once again of the peculiar den in which he was sitting. I have to admit, Gary, 
I want Murphy out of my mind. Indeed, doesn't it seem as though he's reaching out to you? The shopkeeper proposed. It's possible, Van Melsen agreed. But why me? It's not as though I know the man. Beyond speculation at this point, Peter. Van Melsen puffed on his cigarette. Right down to the butt, it was. What happened to the custodian, Pimpinella? he asked. Well, Cook began, sighing. We've Pimpinella to thank for retrieving the gubbins from Murphy's flat. His vague notes concerning the four steps, the verse we now know as the path. Without her, that lot would have gone to the tip. Fascinating, the investigator reflected. I've always wondered how that stuff came to light. The shopkeeper hesitated, shaking his head. But she wasn't the same after recovering the box, he continued. It changed her. She was hell-bent on going after the young man, wouldn't listen to reason, clung to the little thing day and night. It warped her. She grew impatient, communed with the old ones, they say, handed herself over to those cultists, descended into the tunnels under York, just like you, Peter. Took us years to piece the whole grimy affair together. Blimey, Gary, the investigator said, reluctantly revisiting those shadowy passageways. I daren't imagine what became of her. Better not to try, old friend. But know this, she hasn't been heard from since. A moment of shadowy silence passed between the two, as both Cook and Van Melsen visibly reeled from the brown travel-bag in their midst. With his mind on the strange item sitting quietly nearby, the investigator said, I've heard the stories, Gary, all the rumours, but I'd like to hear your take on it. Where do you think Murphy ended up? Oh, it's very hard to say, Peter, Cook admitted, though the most compelling rumour in the air, as far as I'm concerned, is the notion that he did indeed happen upon and cross the bridges of slumber, those links between worlds, and found himself elsewhere. It's been suggested that Murphy was a very sensitive dreamer. Perhaps he was shown a glimpse of something beyond his reckoning, the promise of an irresistible utopia, the path to it ensured by the manifestation of that little black box. But what of the steps? Van Melsen queried. This is four steps Murphy we're talking about. There are many possibilities, Peter, Cook said, his bushy eyebrows raised. A means by which to locate the bridges of slumber? A series of instructions pertaining to his return, perhaps. A way back? The investigator mused. Indeed. Pimpanella said as much following the discovery of Murphy's notes. Van Melsen sighed, saying, A missing dreamer, a series of vague instructions, an unfathomable black box. Oh, I, I'm at a loss, Gary. Such is the nature of the thing, old friend. However, my plan to go after the young man isn't quite as verbose. Then why don't we just get to it? Van Melsen blurted, lighting another cigarette irritably. The old shopkeeper nodded and took a deep breath. Okay, Peter, Cook said. We've got the box, and that's all we need in terms of navigation. Pass me the back. 
Warily, Van Melsen handed the travel bag to Cook, noting the shape of the lump within as he did so. The shopkeeper donned a pair of gloves, thick leather gloves, just like those he'd provided the P.I. with for use in the York catacombs. Then, with great care, removed the little black box from the bag. For a moment, Cook just held it there in the palm of his hands, marvelling at its stark simplicity, the lack of embellishment, an ebon cube some four inches square. Van Melsen gawped, too. It was as alien a thing as one could ever hope to encounter. The shopkeeper placed it on the cushion in front of him, ensuring its stability before removing his hands. Next, we need to burn some incense, he said, a specific combination of oils. The stuff burns long and produces a great deal of smoke, inducing a particular state of mind, Peter, one that, in combination with the box, will, in theory, allow you to commune with Murphy. Commune? Van Melsen asked for clarity. Yes, you'll be a passenger of sorts, in the back of Murphy's mind. And this will actually work, will it? The presence of the box will ensure our success, Cook stated with confidence. I have it on good authority that a man of your abilities will have little trouble focusing on Murphy, wherever he is. There's a reason you're drawn to him, Peter. As I said before, I believe he's been reaching out to you. Perhaps, the investigator said, diffidently. But how and why? The answer to those questions awaits you beyond the smoke, old friend. Puffing on his cigarette, Van Melsen retorted, This is the only smoke I put my faith in, Gary. Cook chuckled, climbing to his feet. Navigating the would-be hooker lounge, he collected a sizable incense stick and what looked to be a military-grade gas mask. Returning to the cushion opposite the P.I., he donned the mask and withdrew a box of matches from the breast pocket of his shirt. "'I don't like the look of you in that mask,' Van Melsen commented, placing the butt of his cigarette in the ashtray beside him. "'Nor do I like the look of you through it,' Cook returned, his muffled voice sounding a million miles away to the investigator's ears. "'When I light the incense,' the shopkeeper continued, "'take hold of the box.' Van Melsen nodded, his heart beating rapidly. "'And then?' he begged of his masked companion. "'Once you're in there, wherever there is, you'll find yourself attached to Murphy. You must find a way to guide him out, Peter. The little black box is the key to this.' Or so I'm told. Black and white, Gary, Van Melsen put in cynically, refraining from asking further questions. Though his old friend's strategy was vague and peculiar, he trusted him implicitly. Relax, Cook encouraged. Just think of Murphy. Focus on him. But I've never seen the man's face. His face has nothing to do with it, Peter. Focus on the presence that presence that continues to haunt you and your dreams. Exhaling slowly, the investigator nodded, bracing himself for the inevitable. Cook lit a match and brought it to the incense stick. In a matter of seconds, 
The smoke was positively billowing from the thick stick. Plumes of the stuff pervaded the air, filling Van Melsen's nostrils with the unmistakable scent of lavender, amber, and— What was that? Devil's snare, perhaps? Cook was rapidly consumed by the wafting vapours. Nothing but the eyes of the gas mask were visible to the investigator. Vast and round like the eyes of a giant fly— studying him intently. Blindly, he reached forward in search of the little black box. The moment his naked fingers touched it, he was assaulted by a series of images—cityscapes, seascapes, extensive forests, sandy plains, and a lofty tower, a massive structure piercing the very sky itself—a black sky, full of clouds. He coughed and— spluttered as the smoke filled his lungs, stripped him of his orientation. He flailed about wildly, the box gripped firmly in his right hand, assaulted by the countless images that dominated his field of vision. "'Gary!' he called out, the sound of his own voice instantly devoured by the fumes enveloping him. "'Gary!' But the man in the gas mask had disappeared. Or was it? Van Melsen that had disappeared. The investigator found himself in the void, an indeterminate space in which only a sense of self remained. Cook's hooker lounge was gone. The intense smoke was gone. Even the little black box that had been firmly clutched in his right hand was gone. He had disappeared. But that was the least of his concerns. Where, exactly— had he reappeared. The renowned paranormal investigator, Peter Van Melsen, was now a passenger in the back of Jason Murphy's mind, who presently was sitting barefoot and cross-legged on an open stretch of tarmac. Part 1. The Flight of Fancy Jason Murphy couldn't say where it was that he had learned of the idea. Perhaps he'd read of it on an internet forum, or maybe it was scrawled on the wide margins of some twentieth-century encyclopedia, the kind of heavy volume studied exclusively by those engaged in the loneliest pursuits. Had the idea come to him in a dream? The flat Murphy had occupied for the past eleven years was just a space. It held little value, whereas the idea, that had gnawed away at him for the longest time. And now it was the only thing on his mind, not the dingy tower block on James Street, with its panoramic views across the industrial landscape of West Broughton, not the ghosts of the Revolution, the dimpled hills and the derelict mills, only the idea. It lingered there on the periphery of his consciousness, tempting him with its pledge of brighter tomorrows. And so, one night, he climbed to his feet, strolled to the door of his flat, and stepped out into the cold of a dreary English evening. He didn't even bother to close the door behind him, didn't look back, not so much as a farewell was uttered, 
as he walked away from over a decade within its walls. Nor did he bid farewell to his life. Friends were few, family estranged. The young man was a lonely soul on the edge of poverty, a quiet man, who preferred to keep himself to himself. His good deeds and moral excellence had done little to enrich his life. Never was he rewarded for his altruism and righteousness. The idea was all that mattered to him now, and at last he'd surrendered to its irresistible call. The young man left James Street behind, wearing only a pair of faded stonewashed jeans and a plain black T-shirt. Barefoot, he winced as he trod upon a piece of broken glass, but it didn't draw blood. On he strolled. Deep into the backwoods he wandered, drawn towards the idea, the abstraction glimpsed in reveries, known as the bridges of slumber. He treaded the flats of the Zark, vast expanses of moorland totally unfamiliar to him, for that which he sought lay beyond the marshland and the barren hills. Guided by gnarled trees and murky skies, he continued doggedly, the passage of time itself giving way to the young man's relentless determination. And eventually— the young man found that which he sought, and in doing so, vanished from the world he'd always known. Welcome to the dreamscape, whispered a soft, faraway voice. Murphy opened his eyes. His surroundings were strange. There he was, sitting barefoot and cross-legged on an open, asphalt road, surrounded by all manner of vehicles— Rust-bitten cars of indeterminate origin, crumpled motorcycles, upturned tram cars, and even the hollow fuselage of an aircraft. Further observations revealed other curiosities, an abandoned fast-food kiosk with the name Fisk above it, an upright piano in mahogany, several cardboard boxes filled with videotapes, and a single kaleidoscopic Waltzer carriage. Amongst the clutter, he saw bodies, dozens of bodies. Living or dead, he couldn't be certain. Though the fallen figures were motionless, their wide, staring eyes appeared lustrous and aware. Unbeknownst to he who had sought the bridges of slumber, a trio of sharp-suited gentlemen slouched to his rear. As he turned, he was met with their twisted features— arms outstretched, frozen in time. The young man let out a startled cry before promptly rising to his feet. The scene was that of a veritable dystopia. The road on which the new arrival stood stretched as far as he could see. Even in the deep distance its broad pathways were crowded with vehicular clutter and motionless mannequin men. Towering skyscrapers dominated the scene, reducing the thoroughfare itself to nothing more than a slot canyon. Murphy's eyes followed the facades of the buildings to their dizzying heights, many of which disappeared into the hazy clouds inhabiting the lower atmosphere. Billboards affixed to the towers were plentiful, host to plain descriptions such as bank, mall, and antiquities. Brass street lamps spilled smatterings of soft light onto the scene, the light of day barely reaching the road's surface. 
All was incredibly quiet. The only sound to be heard, the familiar whistle of distant wind. Traversing the detritus, the young man set off in the direction of the aircraft fuselage. North, south, east, or west, it was impossible to tell. He simply moved with the wind. Already, fear was beginning to get the better of him. The repetition was frightening. He would find himself passing the same objects repeatedly. A rusty Ford Prefect, an insect-like Jowett touring car, and the aircraft fuselage. And then, a distorted face would meet his eye, its absent glare threatening to undo him completely. The sheer strangeness of the situation had Murphy dumbfounded. Where the hell am I? He grumbled, the notion of the bridges of slumber far from his mind. The man in the black t-shirt wandered for what felt like an eternity, and yet the mysterious highway remained unremitting in its repetition. Upturned tramcars, boxes of videotapes, the bank, the mall, and that damned prefect. As Murphy's frustration reached its apex, something in his surroundings changed. Sandwiched between bank and mall, the young man noticed a new addition to the otherwise familiar scene. A small, ill-matched brick building, with a wooden sign hanging from an iron bracket, reading, Books. An unfamiliar voice in the back of his mind instructed him to enter the bookshop. Approaching the store, a low, whistling wind brushed by Murphy, making the hairs on the back of his neck stand on end. A dreary shop window display greeted him, which, judging by the dust and cobwebs coating the items on show, had gone unattended for some time. But the odd and strangely comical titles of several paperbacks immediately caught his attention. The Milking of Goats by J. Cheeseman. Commas in the Middle of Words by B. Punctuation. What is it with Towers, anyway? By B. A. Tallman and the ridiculously long-winded, an incomplete but nonetheless critical look at the history of totalitarianism in the god-awful, rat-ridden, maggot-infested district of County Bravadas, by too many verds. Then Murphy noticed something else. It was a minor thing, really, a scrap of paper in the hands of a wooden dummy, but he felt that he had to have it, whatever it was. Ignoring the sign that read, Closed, he pushed the door open and went after his prize. Inside, the bookshop was hideously dark. It wasn't hard for the young man to envisage dark figures lumbering about in the shadows. He could barely make out the interior. The odd desk and chair here and there, bulky shelves housing hundreds if not thousands of books, and innumerable indeterminate objects both small and large. Clambering onto the poorly assembled shop window display, merely sheets of newspaper over cardboard boxes, he clutched at the hands of the dummy. Retrieving the scrap of paper, he fled like a child, afraid of the thing he was now certain was skulking in the shop's blackened depths. At the speed of sound, he crossed the street and hopped onto the bonnet of a rusty prefect, his gaze returning to the store its wooden door swinging to and fro on its hinges. Oddly, after leaving the bookstore, 
Murphy saw that the place appeared to have aged considerably. The shop window was thick with creeping moss, and the sign, barely clinging to the iron bracket now, read, Boo! The roof tiles had apparently melted, the tired grey slates drooping like the wings of bats over the tarnished façade. The man in the black t-shirt turned his attention to the piece of paper in his hand. He unfurled it, revealing the familiar words within. Step one. The path begins at you. Open your mind. Let it all go. Glancing up at the tallest towers, Murphy sighed. Though he'd undoubtedly read or heard those words before, he couldn't for the life of him recall their meaning. His recollections were vague and fragmentary. He was still unsure of himself, of who he was and where he was. Compelled by the urge to walk, the young man climbed from the bonnet of the car, pocketed the paper, and eyeballed the interminable highway. The answer to his predicament was out there somewhere and he was determined to find it, whatever it was. The brilliant, towering symmetry of the alien cityscape filled him with fear and uncertainty, but he didn't hesitate. Thinking of the words on that bit of paper in his pocket, he confidently strode into the unknown. As he went, Murphy ignored the bodies and the vehicles, the banks and the malls, and remained focused on the distant horizon. Slowly but surely, he found himself encroaching upon something new, the end of the road. Beyond the terminus, just visible on the horizon, was an open space, a softly illuminated square. The young man galloped towards it, eager to savour the change of scenery. On reaching the square, Murphy was relieved to have passed beyond the clutches of the impenetrable skyscrapers, to have dodged the last prefect and aircraft fuselage, to have escaped the glare of those innumerable inanimate bodies, the frozen eyes of which had gazed blankly in the direction of this new location. The precinct was considerable. It held the spirit of the colourful old towns of Eastern Europe, such as the Cloth Hall of Krakow, or Sukienice, as the young man distantly recalled but the colour this place might once have held had faded long ago. The square was some half a kilometre in diameter, at the centre of which stood several tired and empty market stalls. Deserted retail outlets formed the area's perimeter, comprising barren bakeries, closed cafes, rotten restaurants, and jaded jewellers. Its bleakness was infectious as evidenced by the conspiracy of clouds threatening to douse it with water, black clouds filled with an unfathomable rage. On the opposite side of the square, Murphy beheld a huge elliptical arch in Gothic style, a passage beyond waning into darkness. The arch was clearly visible in the soft light, with its bold columns and jewel-encrusted spire at the apex. A ravenous-looking gargoyle was perched atop the spire, its contorted features a note of caution to those seeking entrance to the passage it served to protect. The man in the faded jeans felt drawn towards the arch, but before he could consider moving in its direction, an enormous, lucent orb of water descended from the sky. 
some twenty feet wide, and the same again high. It hovered above him momentarily, like a giant, watery eye. The lidless sphere gazed at him, transmitting a curious message. Get ready for the show. In the moments that followed, the ball of water promptly evaporated, and four distinct beams of light shot from spotlights in the corners of the precinct, illuminating the night sky. The beams danced an iridescent jig as a marching band entered the square, some thirty strong. Then came the stalls, men and women in gold and red behind them. They served hot dogs and hamburgers, candy floss and toffee apples, and crowds were quick to follow, citizens of all shapes and sizes, all creeds and colours, the denizens of that strange metropolis eager to feast upon the plentiful delights. A dancing troupe was flung from a trapdoor, thrust into the air by something hidden and unseen. Fire-breathers and sword-swallowers, magic men and snake-charmers. The scene was one of joy and merriment. Carnival. Murphy simply watched, mesmerized by the spectacle, the dancing, the eating, the performance, the drinking. Then, after what could have been an hour or a day, it was impossible to tell, a chiming bell was heard, rung from a belfry close to the Gothic arch. The marching band ceased, the brilliant spotlights converged on the gargoyle atop the arch, and the crowds, dancers, and performers all shuffled towards it. Silence. Bated breath. The citizens of that strange place stood motionless, their eyes fixed on the floodlit gargoyle, frozen, just like the bodies Murphy had passed on the highway. But there was something else amid the men and women gathered there on the square. A presence. And it was in that moment that Murphy realized the crowds were oblivious to him. Not a single person had so much as made eye contact with him. And yet, standing amongst them in the cool evening air, he was cognizant of that strange company, as though another of the anonymous carnival attendees was in fact just like him, an interloper from elsewhere. The young man searched the myriad faces for eyes that saw expressions that spoke, but neither were forthcoming. To whom that palpable, familiar presence belonged, there was no way for him to tell. The sensation quickly passed, as a realization dawned upon him. The crowds were waiting for the gargoyle to speak. And speak it did, but not before that peculiar ball of water once again fell from the sky. The loosened orb engulfed the gargoyle, Refraction magnified the hideous figure, and an inexplicable current animated it. Enveloped by those abnormal, rippling waters, the figurine addressed its audience. In cracked tones, the stony monster welcomed all to the heart of the city in which Murphy had found himself. New Babylon. The last show of its kind was about to take place on the square— an announcement that drew a sigh from the crowd. The gargoyle babbled on, its features full of expression, as the wave-like surface of the floating orb continued to imbue the sculpture with life. It spoke of change, and the difficulties of acceptance, but emphasized the importance of joy 
and the significance of hope. And as the ball of water threatened to depart, the last peculiar tones to leave the gargoyle's monstrous lips spoke of the pending arrival of the circus. The orb evaporated then, rendering the gargoyle once more inert. Distant melodies were heard, emanating from the depths of the strange highway from which Murphy had recently emerged. The spotlights converged on the great road, as did the fixed gaze of the crowd, and onto the square poured a band of wagons and carriages, surrounded by marching flautists and burly clowns. Smiles lit up the square, as the white faces comprising the circus encircled men, women and children alike, taunting and teasing playfully. The marching band sprang back to life, the spotlights ignited the sky, and the crowd cheered as the grand spectacle entered its second phase. It was curious. Murphy saw the drummer's drum and the audience applaud, felt the heat radiating from their numerous writhing bodies, but he heard nothing. Nothing, that is, except for the circus, the honk of horns and licentious laughter. And though the men, women and children of New Babylon were totally oblivious to the interloper in their midst, the clowns were not. In a matter of moments, the men in the black t-shirt were surrounded by a dozen clowns, their oversized shoes just inches from his bare feet. They too fell silent. Murphy was frozen to the spot. A blue-faced clown addressed him in hushed tones, saying that the circus had come to sing him a song. The clown's face was peculiar, somewhat lacking in expression, quite possibly incapable of expression. Murphy shuddered. Clowns were superstitious. Blue face paint was meant to be avoided. Or so a voice whispered to him from the back of his mind. He fought the temptation to flee, as the waxen figure brushed up against him. Then came the chorus, twelve strong. We have been waiting to spring this upon you. A mask for your fear you must sport. So much of your person is drawn to the darkness, you must work to safeguard your heart. And then a red-faced clown brushed up against him. Flute in hand, it accompanied the bizarre vocal with an eerie melody. All that you see is inevitably born of a picture inside. The road to salvation is laid out before you. You must try to open your mind. Concluding their performance, the clowns were quick to retreat. They jumped onto their wagons and promptly vacated the square, returning to the shadowy depths of that fantastic highway. And as the last echo of distant clown horns fell on his ears, Murphy was shocked to find himself standing at the centre of an empty square. The spotlights were gone. As were the stalls and the bustling crowd, everything was as it was before, barren and desolate. Frowning, the young man approached the Gothic arch, the dampness of the stone the only evidence that his recent experiences had actually occurred. Or was it the only evidence? Had the gargoyle's right arm been extended like that, its rigid finger pointing towards a building in the grounds of a murky courtyard to its rear? As dark clouds began to gather overhead, Murphy passed beneath the gargoyle, 
Into the courtyard he trod, his gaze targeting a tired signpost jutting out of the cobbled earth. It read, The Theatre. The young man could see the building in some detail now, a huge red-brick monstrosity. Hugging the shadows, surrounded by towering trees, the theatre recalled visions of Moscow's Kremlin. Stained glass windows were scattered across the walls, depicting strange and oddly disproportionate figures. Gaunt faces stared out, their glimmering eyes penetrating the gloom. A vast, red onion dome crowned the building, once again evoking visions of eastern architecture. Then came the rain. The depths of the courtyard were difficult to observe clearly, though Murphy could just about make out the treetops lining the perimeter. Street lamps spilled soft light onto the scene, but failed to illuminate the dim corners. He refrained from gazing at these, spooked by the darkness, just as he had been in a little bookshop on the highway. Crossing the courtyard at speed, the rain soaking him thoroughly, he neared a small flight of steps leading up to the theatre's entrance. A soft gust of wind brushed the nape of his neck as he hastily climbed the steps. Bold lettering above the building's entrance served to remind Murphy that he was about to enter a theatre. Its double doors were dark, olive-green, heavily tarnished, with several inscriptions in a language beyond his comprehension. Each boasted an opaque, glass window, as well as time-worn iron handles. An arch above the doors was host to a symbol, two cutlasses, one across the other, forming an ornate X. Clutching the handles tightly, he pushed forward with all his might. The doors swung open, and Murphy stepped into a modest foyer. The rain fell violently then, pummeling the doors as they closed behind him. He studied his new surroundings. A large chandelier was the first thing to catch his eye, the sixteen-nozzle crystal fixture dominating the small space. Its candlelight brightened what little was to be seen in the hall. Hung along the wall to the left were seven paintings, each the same as its neighbour, depicting a generic, featureless landscape, a rolling hill, a smattering of trees. Below the painting stood a small lectern, host to a piece of laminated paper. It read, The Landscape. As Murphy studied the paintings, an elderly man spontaneously materialized beside him. The individual was lean, with graying hair, wrinkled brow, piercing eyes, and sporting the most ill-fitting tuxedo a man of advancing years had ever been known to wear. With a warm and inviting voice, he welcomed the young man to the theatre, and spoke of the main exhibition, an item referred to as Manifestation. But prior to viewing Manifestation, the man added, Murphy was to thoroughly digest the paintings comprising the landscape, paying special attention to subtle differences. Understandably bemused, the man in the faded jeans was just about to inquire as to who the old man was, when the aged gentleman dematerialized in as mystifying a manner as that in which he had appeared. Look, Jason, came that voice again from the back of his mind. Look closely. Murphy studied the paintings in the foyer. He looked for subtle differences, 
but he'd never been particularly fond of Spot the Difference, and so the subtleties, he decided, were probably beyond his detection. Approaching the seventh painting, though, something stirred in his belly. Although it appeared to be a replica of the other six, there was something familiar about it, something compelling. As he watched, the wooden frame surrounding the image appeared to recede. The once motionless trees in the foreground were coming to life, sprouting grass-green leaves. Luscious fields birthed wild orchids, swaying from side to side. The globule of yellow paint representing the sun was flickering in the azure sky. M-shaped squiggles soared above the hill, their destination some distant, unknowable plain. Murphy was awestruck. He needed to be there. An overwhelming sense of inevitability enraptured him, an urge that would be satisfied if he could but find a way to climb into that painting before him. But the sensation was fleeting, and in a matter of moments all motion in the picture ceased. It was just a painting again, a generic, featureless landscape, a rolling hill, a smattering of trees. But the young man was fascinated. He was eager to feast his eyes on the main exhibition, Manifestation. Off he went in the direction of the main hall. The doors to the hall were walnut-brown, boasting brass handles in the shape of doves. He clutched the majestic birds and pushed forward. As the doors swung open, Murphy's gaze fell upon a breathtaking view. The main hall was massive, a grand space, basking in colourful opulence and antique reverence. Hundreds of empty seats sprawled towards the stage, fashioned from oak, furnished in leather, delicately polished. Balconies towered above the parterre, some four stories high, from the grand circle to the elegant gods, draped in the finest Victorian furnishings. The marvellous stage, at the bottom of a narrow, descending aisle, called to him. An easel awaited him there, host to what could only be the main exhibition, manifestation. Hesitantly, he set off towards it. The young man's pace was slow, and purposefully so. There was much to absorb. He noted the prominent facets of the theatre's interior, the elegant draperies and crimson curtains of the balconies, the sculptured angels and marble cherubs astride the stage, and the soft, scarlet carpet beneath his naked feet. But despite its beauty and sumptuous comfort, Murphy's fascination was on the wane, owing chiefly to the return of that strange, indefinable presence, the very sensation he'd detected earlier on the open square. Murphy stopped in his tracks. What was once a warm and inviting place was now cold and repellent. His gaze turned to the painting on the stage, the detail of which he was still unable to distinguish. But the source of his trepidation wasn't sitting on the easel. It was elsewhere, watching, waiting. He ogled the angels and the cherubs. No comfort there. Anxiety consumed him. Paranoia tugged at his vitals. Closing his eyes— he silently willed whatever it was to make itself known, a mantra he repeated again and again, 
in his mind. He began to sweat. He was about to scream, but instead, at a heartbeat away from frenzy, he turned sharply and looked upwards. High in the gods, at the very back of the hall, stood a figure, an indistinct, static silhouette. Murphy struggled to perceive the ghostly character. All he could make out was that the figure was wearing a hat of some sort, a fedora, or a trilby, perhaps. The individual lingered there, much as he himself was lingering there in the aisle, a standoff of curious proportions. The young man wiped the beads of sweat from his brow, waved a hand, and proffered a hesitant greeting. No reply was forthcoming. Like the lifeless paintings in the foyer, and the inanimate bodies on the highway, the figure was frozen in place, but it was very much alive. Murphy could feel its cold gaze passing through him, a penetrating glare that was probing for something hidden in the back of the thirty-one-year-old's mind. But what? Murphy spun on his heel, silently praying that the piercing stare of the stranger was in quest of something on the stage. But the moment he did so, the frosty sensation departed him. Surveying the gods once more, his instincts were confirmed. The mysterious figure had disappeared. Somewhat relieved, Murphy continued along the aisle towards the painting. Dragging himself up onto the stage, he approached the easel. Much to his disappointment, he discovered that manifestation was simply another replica of the paintings he'd seen in the foyer. That generic, featureless landscape, a rolling hill, a smattering of trees. But then, just like before, the wooden frame began to recede like a snake shedding its skin, and Murphy was drawn towards it like a moth to a candle flame. The simple blues and greens were slowly replaced with browns and greys as a new landscape began to manifest. The trees wilted and turned to ash, the grass blackened and turned to dust, the sun in the sky withered and turned to coal, the M-shaped squiggles dropped like stones and disintegrated. The scene was nightmarish. Figures that might have been men lay impaled on pillars of scrap metal. Shapes that might have been buildings rose from piles of accumulated debris. Black towers loomed in the background, like lifeless sentinels above the sinister decay. As the gloom continued to scribble itself onto the hideous canvas, Murphy watched in nervous anticipation as another tower, much taller than the others, took form at the centre of the cityscape, its dark, lofty façade calling to the watcher, just as the painting in the foyer had. And again, the young man felt that he needed to be there, standing at the foot of that unlikely structure. But the image was short-lived. In the blink of an eye, the nightmare cityscape was erased, leaving a blank canvas in its wake. Silence pervaded the grand hall. In the quiet moments that followed, the name of the exhibition played on Murphy's mind. Manifestation. Was the desolate cityscape he'd observed a glimpse of something still to come? Or merely the result of something predetermined by the artist, whomever he or she was? 
Regardless, the young man was eager to move on. He'd seen enough of that dreadful canvas to last a lifetime. Gathering his wits, he looked beyond the easel, and saw a small neon sign above a door backstage labelled Exit. Abandoning the canvas before him, he strolled to the door and stepped out into darkness. Much to his delight, the rain had stopped. A small flight of stairs led the young man into a narrow alleyway, filled with scraps of newspaper, discarded tin cans, and plastic bags. A questing ant colony plundered the waste, one by one disappearing into a tiny fissure in the ground. High above, eerie beams of moonlight penetrated the oppressive black clouds, dimly illuminating the scene. To his rear, the theatre was now engulfed in thick fog, only the faintest impression of colourful figures in stained glass could be seen beneath its veil. Murphy crept along the alleyway, his attention drawn to a solitary, glowing street lamp. Scuttling critters moved in and out of the light, roaches and crickets, beetles and spiders. He danced around them, careful not to crush them with his bare feet. Beyond the light of the lamp, he observed the terminus of the alleyway, and soon enough the rangy walls gave way to a small, open waterfront, an enclosed cove surrounded by little wooden huts and rocky outcrops. Stepping onto the harbour, he sensed again a presence to his rear, but this time it belonged to someone else or something else. Turning, he was surprised to be confronted by a cloud of mist, probably formed of the same thick fog that had consumed the theatre some minutes earlier. But unlike regular mist, this veil formed a flat surface, a wall of fog, and it was moving towards him. But as it came within striking distance, it abruptly stopped. Was it conscious, this wall of mist? Was something lurking within, driving it forward? Whatever it was, Murphy sensed that it was benevolent, that it, perhaps, was there to guide him in some capacity. He felt an overwhelming urge to reach out and touch the mist, but a sudden racket coming from the waterfront stole his attention. The harbour was host to a pier, which in turn housed a number of motorboats, seven in total. The furthermost boat, dimly visible at the end of the pier, roared as its engine sprung to life. Evidently, there was a passenger aboard. It buffeted and bounced as it set out into the blackness, the rippling, dark waters protesting its company. Murphy called after it, but his cries went unheard as it faded into the spectral night. The man in the faded jeans crossed the harbour and mounted the pier. The wooden slats beneath his naked feet were wet and greasy. It took a great deal of effort to remain steady and upright, but for some unknown reason he was highly motivated to follow the boat and its mysterious passenger, and so he tiptoed along the length of the pier in search of a boat of his own. Approaching the sixth boat, a black-and-white coble, Murphy immediately detached the rope from the cleat and haphazardly hopped aboard. The colourless water rocked the boat significantly, the result of some invisible disturbance beneath the surface. Meanwhile, 
the seemingly conscious wall of mist resumed its course, obscuring the numerous huts and rocks along the shoreline, before once more coming to a halt at the foot of the pier. Murphy's entire world had been reduced to nothing more than a rickety wooden pier, a pool of black water, and six unremarkable motorboats. Studying the Cobalt's rudimentary controls, he felt that it wouldn't be beyond his powers of deduction to start the engine. The essential controls were akin to those found in an automatic car. He climbed into the helm seat, placed his hands on the small steering wheel, and located the ignition device, a simple key lodged in a hole beneath the wheel. Though the key resisted his initial efforts to turn it, it relented under considerable force, and the engine came to life. Gripping the wheel tightly, he sat back and tentatively pushed his foot down. Heedless of the direction in which he was heading, Murphy simply accelerated into the darkness, hot on the heels of the seventh boat and its furtive navigator. The waters calmed somewhat as he moved away from the pier. In a matter of moments, he was utterly consumed by the inky blackness. The cloud cover above was absolute. Steering blindly, he decelerated significantly, wary of what may or may not be floating alongside him out there on the dark waters. Was it a lake he was crossing? A broad reservoir? Or some vast oceanic expanse? He had no way of knowing. Either way, it was terribly still and totally grim, shrouded as he was by the velvety night. After some fifteen minutes or so of sightless navigation, Murphy killed the engine in order to survey his surroundings. Sitting quietly in the absolute shade, he listened intently, the rhythmic beating of his heart dominating the soundscape. Unfathomably distant though it was, he thought he detected the faintest hint of a motorboat engine. He focused all of his attention on the sound, until he felt reasonably sure of its origin. And so, guided by nothing more than the idea of a compass in his mind, he turned the key in the ignition and accelerated in the general direction of that distant roaring. Over the sound of his own engine, nothing else could be heard. A deep, ominous sense of isolation was starting to get the better of him. He was on the verge of coming undone, but then the clouds began to dissipate, revealing the shimmering moon. A thick haze, glowing yellow in the moonlight, met his eyes. Unlike the strange wall of mist he'd left behind at the waterfront, this fog was truly cloud-like. It surrounded him utterly. But the boat cut through it like a knife through butter, the water vapor dampening his face and hair as he went. Visibility, though, was just as poor as it had been in total darkness. Murphy saw only his hands and the steering wheel in front of him. In the moments that followed, a strange feeling came over the young man. He detected a kind of tipping sensation, the sort of sensation one experiences aboard a log flume prior to its rapid descent into the body of water below. And with the impression came a gust of wind furthering the notion of an imminent, swift plunge. As the dark waters grew choppy ahead of the boat, Murphy tightened his grip on the steering wheel, 
his eyes narrowed to slits. But this was just the beginning of his troubles. A clattering and splattering sound was heard as the boat's engine stalled and promptly failed. The boat was dead in the water, completely vulnerable to the volley of waves now bombarding it, and it was taking on water, too much for the young man to scoop out with his hands. All the while, the turbulent wind continued to churn the waters as Murphy clung to the now defunct steering wheel. Suddenly, a booming, cacophonous roar sounded below the boat, triggering bolder, loftier waves, transforming the dark waters into a bubbling cauldron. The subsurface quake intensified, threatening to tear both the boat and its passenger apart. A tremendous wave drove the boat into the air, and Murphy's saturated hands lost their grip of the steering wheel. Tossed into the back of the little cobal, he braced himself for impact. If the curious sensation of tipping he'd experienced had been a precursor to some unknowable plunge, then the dramatic tilting of the water body now was surely the actualization of that inferred descent. Like a river flowing down a mountain, it sloped at an angle of roughly thirty degrees. Crashing into one of the rear seats, Murphy turned, sat upright, and let out a silent scream as the boat— just like the log on the flume, dropped. And what a ride it was! But rather than culminating in an almighty splash, the boat continued to accelerate towards an unseen target. This, Murphy realized, was because the water body was still tilting, and the rotation persisted as the young man emptied his lungs, praying for divine intervention. But perhaps this was a form of intervention, he thought, an alien method of conveyance through means of topographic transformation. And now, the monstrous rotating water slide had achieved an angle of forty-five degrees. Murphy was glued to the seat, his face a mask of fear. Fifty degrees, and still the water body continued to tilt. Fifty-five degrees, and Murphy's heart was in his mouth, he simply closed his eyes, willing it to be over. Uncannily, the moment he did so, it all came to an abrupt end. Perhaps the force of gravity acting upon his minuscule frame had induced a hallucinogenic episode of some sort. Whatever it was, the man in the black T-shirt was no longer sitting in the motorboat. Instead, he found himself sitting on a large wooden raft, under a blue sky. The raft was floating on a measureless expanse of ocean, completely still under the golden light of the sun. The water surrounding him was perfectly clear. He saw Dorado, Antheus, and Blennies, just below the surface, attracted to barnacles growing on the underside of the raft. But there was something else down there, too. Was it a body? The thing that floated amongst the Dorado and the Blenny certainly held the impression of a body. The legs and arms, the hands and feet, the head and a mass of long, golden hair, the distinctly feminine curves of the torso. The water was so still, and the raft so steady, that Murphy could almost make out the lady's face, a beautiful face, and he saw that she was 
rising from the depths. And then he saw the arm, pruned and pale. The young man staggered backwards, as the unseen lady tightened her grip on the edge of the raft, slowly pulling herself upwards, revealing a second, withered arm, the skeletal hand of which appeared to be clutching something small and indistinct. Then followed the long, golden hair, slick and matted, texture like seaweed, and barnacled? Unexpectedly, Murphy snapped out of the reverie, and found himself sitting rather comfortably in the back of the little motorboat. Cautiously, he sat forward, and slowly climbed to his feet, studying his new surroundings. The boat was docked and attached to another wooden pier, overlooked by an eerie harbour under the soft light of the moon. The quiet waterfront was almost the mirror image of the one he'd left behind, dilapidated huts and rocky crags along the water's edge, with the exception of a single candlelit lamppost standing at the land-end of the pier. In addition to his boat, there were six others docked alongside it, including the one he'd set out across the stretch of water to follow. And there, beyond the glare of the lamppost, ambling into what appeared to be a dark forest, Murphy saw the recently disembarked stranger, the man in the hat. He called after the elusive figure, but again his cries fell on deaf ears. The man in the black T-shirt climbed from the boat and stepped onto the pier. In the act of doing so, he glanced back towards the water, but whereas he might have expected to see an expansive lake, he saw only a towering wall of water. The water body, in its grand transformation, had continued to rotate until it achieved ninety degrees, and was now positioned at a perfect right angle to the quiet cove at the end of the pier. And all this, ostensibly, including the docking of his boat, had occurred whilst he lay unconscious in the back of the cobble. Divine intervention, indeed. He approached the wall, and reached out to touch it. His hand penetrated the surface, just as he expected it to. After all, it was only water. His eyes traced the wall, up into the interminable darkness, as it faded into oblivion beyond the reach of the dim moonlight. He wondered if New Babylon was up there, looking down at him. With only one direction in which to head, Murphy turned his back to the wall of water, and walked the length of the damp pier in his bare, aching feet. He stopped beneath the light of the lamppost briefly, suddenly conscious of the little scrap of paper in his pocket. He withdrew the note, and once again studied the words printed there. Step 1. The path begins at you. Open your mind. Let it all go. The words now held a greater import, for he remembered what it was to have pursued the idea, the path, to have turned his back on his life, to have freed himself of worldly burdens. But that was just the first step. There were others to rediscover. Murphy looked towards the dark forest. He felt, rather strongly, that the key to understanding his situation lay in the hands of the enigmatic stranger he was now trailing. And as he followed, consumed by the Stygian woodland, 
a strangely conscious wall of mist emerged from the towering facade of water that overlooked the harbour. Gary, called the paranormal investigator, shrouded though he was by white vapour. Gary, can you hear me? And the muffled voice of the shopkeeper Gary Cook sounded from some faraway place. Peter, I can hear you. Loud and clear, in fact. Where on earth are you? Poor choice of phrase, Gary. I appear to be on the edge of Murphy's consciousness. I've managed to reach him a couple of times. What are you seeing? Van Melsen, his sense of self vastly reduced, obscured by the racing thoughts of the man in the black T-shirt, described for Cook the journey he was witnessing. It's a true dreamscape, Gary, incorporating elements of Murphy's personal experiences. I joined him at the very beginning, at the very moment he crossed over, as it were. Is he aware of you? Yes, on some level at least. He's deeply puzzled, though. Some memory loss. We've got a way to go yet, Gary. Understood. What now? Cook pressed, the sound of his voice much clearer now. I'm pushing through. I think I might have found a means through which to walk at the young man's side. What? How? I'm not sure exactly, but it has something to do with the incense. Why do I get the feeling this stuff hasn't been properly tested? Cook's silence provided Van Melsen with the answer to his question. I'll check in with you again soon, Gary. If I can, that is. Okay, Peter. Be careful out there. You know me, old friend. <laughs> careful to the last. And with those closing words, the renowned paranormal investigator, disembodied though he was, pushed against the thick white vapours surrounding him. <laughs>